0: Welcome to The Bookening, my name is Nathan Alberson, I am your humble and obedient host. And I'm joined by two wonderful fellows. The first one is Brandon Chasteen. He's the baller who's a scholar of reading. How How are you, Brandon? How are you, Brandon? How are you, Brandon? How are you,
1: Brandon? I'm doing well. How could you not be? <laughs> yeah, that was I'll beautiful.
0: <laughs> the other person across from Brandon in a triangular shape with me is Jake Mansell. He's a pastor. He's also the master of reading and of bleeding. If you prick him. How are you,
1: Jake? I'm doing very well. <laughs> I'm so feel glad. Feeling very softened and very uh ready for this episode now.
0: Now you may may be wondering what this episode is about. Probably not because you probably saw what it was about when you downloaded. But in case you just walked into a room where somebody was playing this episode and you didn't know what it was about, or you just like to shield your eyes or not look what the episode's about and be surprised, then let me enlighten you as to what this episode is about. This episode is about a certain genre of literature, one that we've been covering a lot of lately. And that genre of literature includes such things that we have read over the last couple of episodes as Winnie the Pooh and and Boys of Blur. Now, what, what What would you say? What would you guys say that those books have in common? I wonder.
1: I'm going to say they are books that are ostensibly not for adults.
0: Ostensibly not for adults. Ostensibly for children. Ostensibly, we say, be because of
1: where we landed or some of us landed on winnie the pooh although that's
0: been generating some controversy on the twitter there's some people whose kids are apparently very sophisticated and smart and understand the many levels of irony inherent in milne what would you say to such people jake
1: i'm glad your kids are smart and sophisticated
0: their kids are in fact smarter and more sophisticated than than mine
1: that's that's fine that's okay
0: kids come in all flavors which is one of the reasons why it's so difficult to talk about children's literature, and that's the question that we're going to answer today: is what constitutes a good book for kids? We're going to take a step back and 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 and. and look at it more theoretically. And we're going to get into that topic by talking about the Newbery and Caldecott Awards, specifically the Newbery Awards, which are given to books as signifiers of quality by whatever organization gives them, uh, which is one of the things that Brandon Chastain, the baller who's a scholar of reading, or the scholar who's a baller of reading is going to be talking to us about is, that's where we're going to start. We're going to start with Newbery and what they think is quality and we're going to use that as a springboard for a conversation about what you should look for in kids books you know I mean should they like be edifying and I mean nobody's saying that they shouldn't be edifying but should they you know should they, should their primary goal be to form your children and teach them and all this sort of thing or, or should their primary goal be to entertain kids and just get kids reading you know is it better that kids read junk than don't read at all those are the kinds of questions that we're going to answer and I could not be more excited as a Childless, lonely single person, but I am very eager to hear what Brandon and Chastine as brandon and chastine what Jake and Brandon as child full uh, what's the opposite of lonely
1: uh, happy
0: <laughs> <laughs> as, yes, oh Jake, you're not coming out of the park lately um Jake is absolutely correct. <laughs> oh, As happy people, we're going to hear from, from Jake and Brandon, and they're going to say what their delightful broods of little joy and the, uh, the continuance of their lineage. We're going to find out what it's like to have hope and joy. And... Uh, <laughs> What I'm trying to say is we're going to talk about children's books today. So, Brandon, give us some context, why don't you, on the Newbery Awards to begin with while I go cry in the (laughs) corner.
2: So we've talked about the Newberry before, who it was actually started by, or in honor of that guy, Newberry, who started children's literature. If you want to hear about his history, you can go back and listen to the Winnie the Pooh episodes. But this was established in the 1920s. At first, it was like a panel of librarians and stuff who were over children's departments in libraries across the nation. It's an American award. I think towards the mid-1900s, it became more codified. And so you had some members who were elected, some members who were or some members who were nominated, some members who were just a part of this committee, then you have a head of the committee, and they meet twice a year, and they read these books that are either suggested and nominated by them, or any, actually any young adult child children's novel is up for consideration, even if it hasn't been nominated. But they read these twice a year, they meet, they discuss, and they decide which book they're going to give this medal, and then they also choose... A, a handful of novels that will get honors. So the Newbery Honor. They don't get the award, but they get the honor. With the honor, you can still put like... Yeah, you get the Newbery the, stamp.
0: You still put the stamp on the front of your book, and it sells way more, and people are in... Like, that's that's an... It's an honor to get the honor.
2: Yeah, so like as a kid, I, I remember these books, like I think Roll of Hun- Thunder, Hear My Cry was one. Definitely. Shiloh. They had that gold stamp on the front of the book, and that always meant that this book is quality. This book is like something you want to read. So to be considered for the Newbery Award, it definitely has standards. They're very set about it. It almost sounds like the Academy, that Academy Awards comes out of, that they're looking for quality and they have a certain quality in mind that they're looking for. And so... There, this has led to a lot of controversy surrounding the Newbery Award. And would, the controversy that I find interesting, people think that the Newbery Award has actually turned a lot of children off of reading because elementary schools want to have the kids read the Newbery Award winners, but the Newbery Award winners are hard. Like The standards that the Newbery has, the Newbery Association has, are too high, and so these novels are actually too difficult for children, and so it, it's not... The Hunger Games, like uh, the Hunger Games certainly has, I don't know if it's an American novel or not, but it hasn't won the Newbery Award. And so what kids like to read versus what kids are being required to read by the Newbery Association, this has led to this controversy, especially as we get into this new age of what visual media driven Mm -hmm. society where books are dying. It's an interesting debate.
0: Yes, I think we both saw a Washington Post article where a gentleman named John Beach, Associate Professor of Literacy Education at St. John's, University in New York studied 30 years of book lists chosen by children and adults. He found that there was a less than 5% overlap between the Children's Choice Awards and the annual Notable Children's Books list, which includes a lot of the Newbery and Caldecott winners.
2: So the debate... That comes out of this. It's on the one hand, you have Harry Potter. And on the other hand, you have those... And Harry Potter may be a bad example. You have The Hunger Games. On the other hand, you have the novels that have won the Newbery Award. Right. And so what you have to consider or what people argue about, and I definitely have my opinion, mm-hmm. is do you have books that kids like to read? Or I guess in the past, we've talked about R.L. Stein. He's perfect for this. Do you have books that make kids at least want to read? Or do you have books that require kids learn to read what's good? Mm-hmm. And what's? how do you balance it? Should there be a balance? Should you just go one way or the other? Um, I've recently been in a debate around high school students. They had a teacher who wanted to make them read a certain book. The kids didn't want to read it, and so he just then brought out another book that was very simple and asked them to vote, and they said yes, and so he's letting them read it now. And is that the way that teaching literature should happen? Is that the way that we should be um, leading kids when we're teaching them books? It's interesting because as you also look at the Newbery Award, recently you see that it's becoming politicized like Mm -hmm. everything else. And so what the Newbery considers valuable definitely has changed. Their values now are more multicultural. Is this book expanding the child's awareness of their cultural landscape and of the changing American tapestry? Trying to think of the kind of crazy words that people like that use. And so the political agendas are becoming the new quality. And so while we're having this debate, yeah, some of you might, out there may be thinking, well, that sounds great. The Newberry sounds like the type of people that I want to side with. You also have, you have to take into consideration the way that our cultural understanding of quality is changing, too. And so maybe you don't want to do that.
0: Well, I was looking through the list of winners and trying, kind of remembering my homeschool days and and the, the the various Newbery books that I had seen or been exposed to or read. It's an interesting list, and it was interesting to try and think what what was good about it and what was bad about it. If I just go through, let me see what the highlights are here. 1928, Gay Neck: The Story of a Pigeon. One.
2: <laughs> I saw that. <laughs> That's
1: pretty.
0: Sounds like a pretty great book. The books that I remember, the Newbery books that I remember. I should have just made a list of the ones that I remember so I don't have to go through. Oh, the first Newbery book that I really remember enjoying, which was a Newbery winner, which was a big favorite around our house, was Mr. Popper's Penguins, yep. which is turned into a wonderful Jim Carrey movie. But oh, yeah. No, actually, the book was really good. I don't know. But I never saw the Jim Carrey movie. I assume it sucked. Let's see. Little Town on the Prairie one. Which one is Little Town on the Prairie? Is that... Is that Is that what we know as Little House on the Prairie? Yeah. That's something else. It's later. It's later? Okay. So late Laura Ingalls Wilder. And then you've got things like Johnny Tremaine, which I always hated as a kid. You've got A Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry, Call It Courage. I sort of have a bad taste in my mouth from those books as a kid because they they were exactly what you were describing. There were books that adults wanted you to read. Uh, The Bronze Bow. Always hated The Bronze Bow. I hated The Bronze Bow. (laughs) I'm glad you hated The Bronze Bow, too. Just morally uplifting stories of historical figures that didn't have anything fun or entertaining about them.
2: Yeah, and you can see with the Newbery Awards each year what the people, like the librarians who were overseeing it, what they thought was good for children Mm -hmm. and what they wanted children to read. And so as you get later on, you get things like what stories on the war front of Cuba or something. I forget what it was called. But these, um, they may be well-written. They may not be. I know certainly from my past experience as an undergrad that you can get things that professors want you to read because they're multicultural. They're Mm -hmm. just bad. I'm trying to remember what the name of that book was. Oh, it was so bad. All that to say, just because some academy is feeding you the best books of the year doesn't necessarily mean they're what's actually good. But the fact that they do have standards... Of some kind. And the fact that those standards do have to do with the quality of storytelling, and they do have to do with the prose and how well-written the book is, it does mean something that Indy Wilson was considered for the award. And it does put him into a, a certain category of young adult fiction writer. Oh, I just, uh, to interrupt for a second, I just found
0: the first book that I would consider to be a classic that actually is did win in 1978, Bridge to Terabithia, is a pretty heartrending. Uh, I haven't read it since I was a kid, but man, it destroyed me. If you know what happens in Bridge to Terabithia, if you've seen the movie or anything, I don't know. Yeah. You guys know, you guys know Bridge to Terabithia. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, I won't. We we shouldn't spoil it for Jake. Probably is is Bridge to Terabithia actually good? Like I remember it. being? Yeah, it's, good. Yeah, it's pretty good, right? Yeah. yeah. So so there's a classic. E.B. White lost. He he was an honor. He, he uh, Charlotte's Web didn't make the top cut its year. So. Yeah, you can kind of look. Ramona Quimby, age eight, got an honor. Yep. I always hated those books as a kid, mostly because they were for girls. Uh, Sarah Plain and Tall. I'm sorry, it's just bringing back memories to look through. I just I used to see all these books like at school. They'd be in the school library, or um, because I always went to dorky Christian schools. Maybe do you do you have any? Is this ringing any bells for you at all, Jake? Or? Some of them. I had
1: to read Johnny Tremaine in fifth grade.
0: Yeah, I think everybody has to read Johnny Tremaine in fifth grade. Do you it's remember? just required. Yeah, it's just like, if you want to be a sixth grader, then you must read Johnny Tremaine in fifth grade. Because of when dixie apparently, was one. I think, actually, it makes me appreciate. I think it's a good lens to look at Andy Wilson through, because I think he does a little bit of what's good about the these awards and avoids a little bit of what's bad about the awards because he's obviously in boys of blur writing a book that boys are supposed to like it's got football and monsters and blood and gore and suspense you know it's it's just a compendium of stuff that people actually like to read about all stuffed into one book i think that's good and i like the the i like i i you know if you've listened enough you know my i have a bit of a populist instinct. I like that N.D. Wilson goes that direction away from a lot of these very uh, enlightened sort of medicinal books that win awards from teachers associations and stuff. I also like that he's a little higher quality than in his in what he's trying to do in his writing style than the kinds of books that the Newberry would never consider like uh, Harry Potter or um, The Hunger Games or R.L. Stein, Jake's favorite author. So, yes, that's the thing that I just said. That's a, a,
2: a lot of stuff I just said. That was a lot of stuff. Do you have anything to add about the Newberry Award? Nope. Do we have anything we missed about the Newberry Award? Well, so then to get back to some of the discussion we had with Winnie the Pooh, how childhood was kind of – the childhood market was kind of created. You have this new market that came out, I guess – it's a fairly recent market, actually, and it's the market for young adult fiction. It's something that hasn't existed for that long. Well, Young adults haven't existed for that long. Yeah, right? it's it's the whole concept of the teenager and the way that the idea behind the teenager now has shifted the way that we treat these kids who are between the ages of 13 and 21. Or thirteen and eighteen, however you see a teenager, the way that we respond to them, the expectations that we have for them, as a culture, as, as I'm gonna quit saying the word culture, good grief, it's because I said multiculturalism, as a society, right, as a nation, as, as, a, as a people group, right. I postulate. Sometimes I bother myself. Okay, <laughs> so, um, but the way that we position ourselves towards them and react towards them, and the ex, like I said, the expectations that we have about them, who they'll be, what they'll do. A lot of this is created because it's always, it's a fascinating thing to consider whether our art creates this for us or whether it's actually something that has always is true about the world. And so we have these movies and we have these books that are about teenagers and we think teenagers are supposed to be a certain way. They're supposed to like a certain music. They're supposed to have an immaturity about them that we have accepted that is fairly new and it definitely wasn't a part of like Victorian culture. Well, now let you me. A hundred years ago, two hundred years ago,
1: three hundred years ago, what books are twelve-year-olds reading?
2: Not these. Well, so if you tr- if you look at the history of young adult literature, you have things like Robinson Crusoe would be thrown in there. You'd have a lot of the books by um, Andrew Dumas. Thrown in there. Not Andrew DeMoss. Alexander. Yeah, Alexander Andrew. Oh, uh, um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so the Count of Monte Cristo. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that Andrew dude. <laughs> Such a French name. Andrew um, DeMoss. You have him, but you'd have like the Swiss family, Robinson, A lot of those books that weren't, they were just adventure books.
1: You go back far enough and you've yeah. got kids that are taught, you know, Greek and...
2: Exactly, yeah.
1: And Latin and they're reading Homer by the time they're 12. Yeah.
0: But I think if you want to see what kids read in kind of the late... 18th century or the late 19th century and early 19th century all you have to do is find episodes of the old Walt Disney show where Walt Disney was in the show and they do things like uh Swiss Family Robinson and I know that was a Disney movie that's not a good example but like the Scarlet Pimpernel and all these kind of colonial adventure stories and Robert Louis Stevenson type stuff and um yeah, yeah.
2: so there were books that had stories that were appealing to boys and to girls, but they weren't necessarily written with a teenager in mind. Alexander Dumas certainly wasn't, or no, not he at did. all. He loaded up but, all m- kinds of stuff they shouldn't read about. Oh yeah, but the idea of the market, of there being a market, a teenage market, really didn't exist. Even when you some of the books you have in the fifties, like *The Lord of the Flies* or *Catcher in the Rye*, that we think of as being for that market, they really weren't written for them. They are just they've been co-opted. Now we think of like *The Swiss Family Robins. We think that this market has always existed, but it hasn't. Which is kind of fascinating. And so it's like in the seventies and the eighties, when you get people like Judy bloom, ugh, <laughs> who's just, if there's one, that'll be my big recommendation. or big commandment for this one is never, <laughs> ever read Judy bloom, stay far away from her. But, um, you know, so you get writers like her, you get writers like who are some of the other famous young adult writers that we haven't already mentioned. Uh, whoa, 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 whoa. But you get people who are specifically writing these topics to, kids that are that age, and those books are meant for them. And so obviously it has its own uh, history that develops and uh, some really bad writing that comes out of it because they think that they can get away with sloppiness just because they're writing for that age group. And so then you have things like the Newbery Medal, which wasn't intended to offset that, but does do a good job sort of offsetting that because it encourages quality because you have writers who want to get the Newbery Medal.
0: Well, let me ask you guys this, if I can break in for a second. How did you guys feel... When you were teenagers or when you were when when you were in the demographic, did you guys like the fact that there were marketing guys out there who gave you your own section of books? Were you attracted to those books more than other books? My answer would be a big fat no. I actually I think I resented it and always wanted to be like, I can read adult stuff. What's why why do I have to have my own category? I I, I actively disliked it. Like I thought about it, noticed it, and didn't like it as far back as I can remember, because, you know, why do I want to read these slim little books in this section that's supposed to be for me with goofy, you know, fantasy art or romance art? And I just always thought, you know, like, you don't know me, YA market guys.
1: I mean, we got the Scholastic magazines and they were always given to us or sent home with us or whatever. And there were always, everybody had to buy books from it. And so I just, that was the catalog. But I don't, I mean. The reason I ended up settling on Goosebumps is because it was what was cool in third grade and then, you know, that was it. That was as far as I got with it. I didn't, like, browse any of the other titles or anything like that. Just picked a a thing that wasn't going to look dumb when it showed up, (laughs) you know?
0: (laughs) What about you, Brandon? Do you remember?
2: I had a brief period, but my... More young adult literature was like the Trailblazer series, which was Mm -hmm. about missionaries.
0: Like the Christian version of that sort of
2: same thing. And like the young adult Frank Peretti novels.
0: Yeah, I think we talked about those in our children's literature episode a little bit. But it was a
2: little brief period of my life. I did like no, I I never really thought about young adult literature. It's kind of strange. Never hated it nor felt strongly attracted to it one way or the other.
1: Yeah, I never like... I don't know how many Goosebumps books I've read, probably upwards of 50 or 60, I have no idea. But I never actually actively sought them out that I can remember. Mm -hmm. It was just like, here's a thing that now everybody knows Jake likes, and so... You know whenever the scholastic magazine came and it was time to order, that's what I got and when birthdays and Christmas rolled around, that's what grandparents who asked about what books to get that's what they got and and I devoured them because they were easy. I liked the I liked the book that I could go up to my room and read in an hour and or two or however long it took in an evening, you know one way or another in one sitting
0: yeah. Well, I think that actually answers the question, sort of, which is that, you know, you guys didn't care about it, and I resented it. I, th- I think probably the market is designed, if I had to guess, I don't know, I'm not a marketing guy, but I bet grandmas buy a lot more books than young men and young ladies do, probably, and so I think the market's designed for grandma to be like, here is a section in the bookstore that I can grab pretty much anything, and...
1: Look, there's baseball on the cover. I know he plays baseball. Yeah, he'll probably be like oh, look, this, It's a wide. He likes you know, monsters. Here's... Exactly. Oh, look, she likes babysitting. Babysitter's Club. I don't know.
0: And I don't like that. I mean, probably good for selling books, so yay marketers. But I'm not a big fan of that sort of, uh, I mean, it doesn't result in kids (laughs) reading better books. And I think maybe Newberry and those sorts of organizations have the opposite problem from an opposite angle where they're thinking, here's the medicinal thing that will be good for the kid to read. Or or here's the thing that I really liked that moved me as an adult that – I think that kids should be moved in the same way. And I think what you actually have to think about is what's going to be appealing and what's going to be helpful for an actual kid, which is what too few of the pundits on either side do. As far as I'm concerned, the only people that do it are Nathan Albertson, Brandon
2: Chastain, and Jake Menzel. Oh, yeah. We're the only ones. The and only ones? Um, so what you end up with is you have the Newberry, which is reminding me of like PBS. Mm-hmm. So you get these... Things that are supposed to be, like you said, healthy, and then you have on the other end like the Disney Channel, Nickelodeon, Nickelodeon, exactly. And so, yeah. So, and then when a kid walks into a bookstore, they're going to be attracted to the cool young adult shelf if they have to go to, if they ever go to a bookstore. Who my, knows?
0: They're nerdy. My my theory is, if they're nerdy enough to be in a bookstore in the first place, they're gonna, they're not attracted to that shelf because it's. pandering to them and they don't like it.
2: like you go to Half Price Books here in town and they have a young adult section. Yeah. And you see teenagers in that section often. I see old ladies. I'm sticking with my theory here. You're sticking with your theory. I I buy your theory. I just think that there are the odd creatures out there that actually are 13 or 14 and go to the young adult section. I guess there must be. I mean, I read those Frank Peretti books.
0: I read some Sweet Valley High, actually.
1: Well, if, if you're 13 or 14 and you don't know
2: what you're looking at, the adult sections are pretty hard to sift.
0: That's true. That's true. <laughs> I
2: well to get back to the then the issue of quality. It's something I've been thinking about like I said in other avenues too. But what's so you mentioned the Newberry wants to be this medication that teaches gives the good counter panacea, not a panacea, but the good medicine against the bad the junk pulp. food that is the pulp, yeah. yeah. And so as a parent deciding what your child can read. I think a lot of people have the impression that it's, and I don't think, I don't know if it's the wrong impression or not, but that as long as the child's reading something, that's good. That's what
0: any, any hot take that I've ever seen on Harry Potter or the Hunger Games or whatever the new one is now, it's, it always ends with no matter what you think about the book, at least kids are reading.
2: Yeah. And if we found out that television was good for the eyes, you'd say, well, it doesn't matter what they're watching. At least they're watching something. Right. I don't know. Is that true? So we have the mantra from C.S. Lewis that we're always going back to. That the first thing a good story has to do is be entertaining. Obviously, these young adult novels like that are entertaining. Mm-hmm. At least they've got that going for them. But especially for kids who are getting into the young adult age, should there be the expectation that it'll also begin to do something more? I say yes. I agree. So you'd want you want the books that the child is reading to entertain them, but you also want to begin to train their tastes towards the better things, or even. You want to train their taste with things that are already better. They just don't know it yet. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So Jake looks like he's looking up something.
1: I just wanted to see what Newberry uh, books popped to me on these lists. Yeah, The Tale of Despero, The Giver.
0: Oh, The Giver. That's that's a classic. Wrinkle I'll, I'll and, give it to The Giver. Wrinkle in Time. Uh, wrinkle in Time. I've not read in a long time, and Jake says it sucks now, and I trust him. But yeah, I remember it liking it a lot when I was a kid.
1: Maniac McGee's on there? Uh-huh. Those are the ones that popped to me.
0: Charlotte's Web as an honor is on there somewhere.
1: Yeah. This is actually, if you just put in Newberry Winners, Google gives you one of those, like, at the top of the thing scroll list that you can just kind of scroll through, it and it's not complete.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> what do you guys think as parents? I mean, as somebody who has no offspring... It would seem that some sort of a balanced approach, a nutritional approach where you're not just feeding them Brussels sprouts all the time because they're good for them, and you're also not just feeding them cheeseburgers, but you're giving them a balanced diet with some stuff they like and some stuff that challenges them. It would seem like that's the obvious answer to the question, but is it more complicated than that?
1: It's only more complicated. It's only complicated by the difficulty of digging in and figuring things out. Like, you know, you're not an eight or nine or 10. 11 or 12 year old boy or girl anymore. And there's a lot of stuff out there.
0: There's stuff that may seem simplistic and even stupid to you that is opening their eyes to new worlds that they never thought about.
1: Yeah. It's just kind of difficult. You have to know your kid and you have to, Mm -hmm. I mean, really kind of just have to read the books yourself and talk with them and get a feel of where they're at and what appeals to them and where they need to be pushed and stretched. And that's hard, especially once you get, you know, a couple kids in that in that same age range, or if you're just new to
2: it. Yeah. You're done with them despising the books you make them read. Right. Which that can certainly happen.
1: Yeah. I hated Johnny Tremaine too. Everybody hates Johnny (laughs) Tremaine, right? Does anybody not hate Johnny Tremaine? Yeah. I don't
2: think there's anybody in the world that doesn't hate Johnny Tremaine (laughs) secretly.
1: (laughs) But the other thing that is true is that I, I still remember a lot of Johnny Tremaine. And so I don't know if I actually hate Johnny Tremaine or if I hate the fact that my, or if I hate my fifth grade teacher, Right. (laughs) Or I did when I was 11. Now she's like my favorite teacher ever, you know? Yeah. I don't know. Shout out to Mrs. Culliver if you're listening.
0: I think we've shouted out Mrs. This is like, might be her second or third shout out. I
1: know. Libby Culliver. Culliver. She's the woman.
0: Good job, Mrs. Culliver. Thank you so much for making Jake the man he is today. I think uh, one place, uh, one thing I will say about what everything you just said, Brandon, is I really do not like the idea of reading as an inherent virtue, this virtue, this sort of liberal virtue signaling that goes on with just like, you should read, open up new world. You know, you see posters in schools with rainbows and dragons and fairies and it says read and there's a little kid reading a book and it looks all magical. And if you just read, reading can be good and it can be terribly destructive. Of course, kids should know how to read and they should read things. But to to, I think there's this weird thing where people think that just simply the act of words going from your eyeballs into your brain is some kind of inherent virtue and, I
2: don't know. No, it's like being out in the sun or exercising. Without something, there has to be something more to what they're reading and their engagement with what they're reading. And I would argue as soon as they get into high school, especially, there has to be a good teacher behind the reading or they're not going to get as much out of it.
1: Yeah, I think all of that's true. At the same time, I, I do kind of think that taking in words is, uh, is like standing out in the sunshine in the sense that you, there are some kids out there that just, they don't like to read. They don't want to read. And sometimes it's because it's hard. Sometimes it's because uh, there can be all kinds of reasons. And I think there is a sense in which whatever you can do to get your kids excited, engaged in reading, you should do mm-hmm. um, with a goal of, of, of getting them into good stuff. You know, pushing them, but sometimes you just got to find that one that one thing that makes them realize the potential of, a, of reading, yeah. the potential that it has for them that makes them read enough that they grow in their ability to read and, and can move on to bit better things. Sometimes you have you may have a 10 or 12 year old kid that needs baby food because he's been you know on the bottle mm. his whole life.
0: Yeah, no, I, I agree with that 100%. And it occurs to me that it's easy as someone who always enjoyed reading to say, well, it's not a virtue. I mean, when you have a virtue, it's easy to, you know, just kind of be dismissive about its its virtuousness, I guess, in some weird way, maybe. But I don't know. I don't like the sanctimoniousness that comes with a certain liberal brand of yeah, sure. everybody read, yay, reading. And, and well, I yeah, see a like lot of kids... Reading
2: that, is going to bring political yeah freedom and stuff this was what you get like from pbs so everything's about teaching the child how to read but i mean i'm with jake if i think about like my childhood i read a lot of trash mm -hmm. and junk but then eventually i mean it taught me to learn to love to read and eventually i I started reading what was good and so there is value to just reading
1: and the trash can train you it can train you to not Ever read a classic, right? If the trash is just every page is candy, every page is giving you something you don't have to ever work for. I guess if it trains you, you to not ever, ever really want to work for it, Mm -hmm. and to see the payoff and working for it in a book, then you know that can obviously have terrible consequences.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think the only thing I'm saying is let's not make a virtue out of. A lifetime of eating McDonald's cheeseburgers because it's not—it's bad and it will kill you at age 53. You know, it is not a virtue. Now, if you—if if you're a little kid and you, you, it's better for you to eat a McDonald's cheeseburger than starve, of course, eat the McDonald's cheeseburger, enjoy it. And if the McDonald's cheeseburger helps you learn to enjoy steak, that's great too. If it—if it helps you learn to enjoy Brussels sprouts, then I can even get on board with that. But if the McDonald's cheeseburger leads to reading or <laughs> to reading more McDonald's cheeseburgers. That's not a good thing. That's an unhealthy thing. And Yeah, if it, you're
1: in your 20s or 30s and you're waiting for the next Indy Wilson book to come out or the next Jerry Spinelli book to come out or whatever, then
2: kind of a sad place to be. Yeah. I mean, there are so many yeah, kids. It's, it's some yeah, of the people that I've seen. Nate Wilson's not writing for you guys. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> some of people I've seen with the, their baskets, the most full of books at like half price books are people who are just buying Harlequin romances. Mm-hmm. So just because you love to read doesn't necessarily mean that it's done you any good. Yeah. Many of the best people, the
0: best, the people that read the most that I've known have been, like... (laughs) I don't want to be too... I don't want to be classist or anything, but uh, I don't know how to say it without being classist, though. Like, I've known in my time a lot of... There's just no way to say it. That doesn't sound mean. But house, like, redneck housewives read all the time. I mean, it's just a fact. Yeah. They read... Like readers die. Voraciously. And, yeah. and they read Harlequin Romance and they read 50... They read, like, books with sex that make them feel better about their own miserable husband that left them and with their 12 kids or whatever. Um I mean, I know that. I know that's an awful stereotype, but I know that stereotype. I've met that stereotype many, many times in my life of people that just read James Patterson novels. It's always James Patterson and Harlequin romance, and Nora Roberts, Nora Roberts, uh, Daniel Steele. Um, and it's just, it, it really is. I mean, my cheeseburger analogy is pretty good. It's like, it's going to, it's going to kill you. It's going to corrupt you. It's not Something that's and maybe it's better than starving, but maybe maybe there becomes a certain point where starving's better more starving's the virtue. I don't know. You just gotta live the tension, I suppose.
1: It's better than daytime soaps. Mm-hmm. Well
0: Maybe.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: Maybe. With some of the Harlequin romances Keep are
2: pretty bad. Driving down the uh yeah. stereotype. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's better than daytime soaps, yeah. Because Yeah, a lot of I mean, so they love to read, but they haven't been also taught that it's a good... But they don't love to read. What they love is to escape.
1: Yes. Mm -hmm. They love to escape. And uh, that's what reading was for me. In anything, if you go back and listen to that episode, what I didn't say about Huck Finn cause I didn't realize it until I got back into it was that Huck Finn was a tremendous escape for me, but it was an escape. It it was, it was, it was the steak escape instead of the cheeseburger escape. It was part of why that book was so important for me was here's this wonderful, it's like, here's a steak and it's seasoned perfectly for you and it's delicious. Mm -hmm. And why were you ever reading R.L. Stein when there's, a Mark Twain out there.
2: When you could be making sandcastles at the sea. That's right, yeah. <laughs> but,
1: um, but so, you know, you you know as, as a kid, it was escape, it was escape, it was escape, it was escapism. And then I found the escape that opened me up to literature in general. And it was just the right book at the right time. But what you actually have, you know, with 20, 30, 40, 50-year-old people reading pulp is just people who are addicted to the escape. Yeah,
2: but they've and never I, taught. They've never trained themselves to also love the beauty, yeah. the part that makes it art, and that's why like Dickens was an escape for me as well for a long time. Until you know, then I started to read other things, and I was like, well, actually, there's a lot of value to Dickens too. And so well, there's, and you begin to appreciate those things about the story that were you weren't noticing when you were young. I want to say that there's value in escape too, uh, to be
1: put in a place where you can for for a brief moment in time, even in an evening. You can transcend the circumstances around you and imagine them being better or different. You can see the 12-year-old boy do the thing that you feel like you can't do as a 12-year-old boy, which is be a hero. You know, those are those are good kinds of, there are good informing escapes out there. And then there's, you know, escape for escape's sake. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. I agree 100%. Which is why I think that you can't, as a parent, thinking about your teachers for your children and the way that you run your home, if you read to your kids, what you expect them to read, you know, you can't just give in to a teenager who just wants to read the pulp. They have to, if they love to read, okay, but they also have to then be challenged to read what's going to be of value to them and to see value in there. And so like, I don't, for a, like for a a teacher in high school, if I think about a good literature teacher for my daughter in high school, it's not going to be someone who just gives in to what she wants. It's going to be someone who forces her to say, no, you may not want to read Shakespeare, but there's actually a lot here. And then prove to her Shakespeare's worth it by being passionate about it yourself and mm-hmm. teaching it with enthusiasm and yep. love yeah. it. And that, think, that goes a long way. I've had a lot of good teachers in my life, and that went a long way for me learning to love good things. Yeah. So
0: I mean, I think people need to realize that I just, I'll I'll, I'll stake my, my uh, well, I don't know what... Um, Taste is something that is proactively developed or not proactively developed, but you make choices that change how your taste develops, whether you make them thoughtfully or whether you're, you make them thoughtlessly. You are, in some measure, responsible. For what happens to your taste and how it grows, and it's not just there. There are things that are inherent about you might like certain things, and blah blah blah. Uh, a kid has to be taught how to like certain things that they otherwise will not like. I have no problem saying that.
1: Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. And as a parent, your job is to cultivate the taste of your children
2: in, in healthy ways, mm-hmm. which sometimes in good means, ways and beautiful yeah. ways. Which often means that it's your job to cultivate the laziness out of yourself, mm-hmm. so, yeah, because you're going to want to just do what's easy. And oh man, I really don't feel like doing this right now. I'd much rather turn on the TV than read them the Wind in the Willows or something, right?
1: Yeah, and it, I've said this before to to people, maybe jokingly, but there's the kernel of truth in it, and that's that I don't I don't trust an adult that that eats Skittles and drinks Mountain Dew, yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, you've never. Are you so averse to? What What's underneath that joke is the idea that if that's if that's who you are, what it tells me about you is that you're averse to to hard things. Right. Like you don't you just you right. don't like hard things. If you couldn't
0: make yourself take take a risk to drink something besides Mountain Dew and eat something besides Skittles. The most sweet. Why, why should we trust you to take a risk? I mean. It's 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 a sign of arrested development, isn't it? I mean, uh, yeah, I think is, it is. is it's is,
1: it's just immature. Sorry, Skittles, Mountain Dew, listeners. <laughs> no, I mean, at the same time, like you know, the, there's a time and place, maybe for, place for everything and everything in it. For, for Skittles for, and Mountain Dew, for Skittles and Mountain Dew. But I'm just talking like,
0: well, it's amazing. No, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I've just had a recent eye-opening experience. This is going to sound awfully virtue-signaling, but I've been on a diet, which basically precludes me eating a bunch of fast food every night on my way home from work. You know, I would get like McDonald's or something and I haven't done it for a while. And I've found that like, if I get McDonald's now, it's not that good. Um, it kind of sucks. Surprise. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I liked McDonald. I was eating it every day or something equivalent. Yeah. And it actually just within a few months of not having it a lot it's like it went way down on my list of things <laughs> that i like like i don't want it now and it's just weird how much of a proactive choice mcdonald's turned out to be like i've been choosing all my life to like mcdonald's and it turns out i didn't have to and yeah. life is better not liking mcdonald's in all kinds of ways you know if you like mcdonald's that's blah, 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 nuance 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 but um
2: well our tastes are heavily built on habit and so if it becomes a habit that you eat fast food, you're going to, you're going to like it and you're going to expect it. And so a lot of that comes with bad literature too. It's the it kind of the similar analogy that if you like that ease, but you like the thrill that it brings you, then it's going to not seem as good when you get into like Anna Karenina. But then if you really devote yourself to it, teach yourself to like it, because you know that people who say you should like this, that you trust, tell you, you should like this, right? Right. You go and you learn to like it. Then you go back and you try to read Harlequin romances, <laughs> Right. <laughs> and it doesn't seem as good.
0: Which is interesting coming off of the episodes where we basically said we didn't really like William Faulkner very much. But I think what the listener might want to know is that a lot of—what's what's the word? Hand-wringing— um, you know, There's a lot of heartache and discussion behind the scenes before we decide to not like something that's considered a classic because you do have to allow for Faulkner to stretch you and to develop muscles that you maybe don't have. And sometimes we bemoan the fact that we do 12 books a year and so we maybe don't have the time to let someone like Faulkner stretch us. You know, I mean, ultimately I still think Faulkner is a failure, but not without, I want to go out and run that race before I say that the course was stupid. Whatever the metaphor is, there's probably a much better one, but I want to eat those Brussels sprouts and let them digest and sit in my stomach and see how things come out. That's not, (laughs) um, (laughs) you know, I want to allow for Faulkner to stretch me. I want to allow for Hemingway to stretch me. If we're going to say that one of these guys isn't good, then it has to be because we've done the work of really
1: If en- all if all of France thinks that escargot is a delicacy, then you can turn your nose up at it as an American and say who grows snails or you can say, There's a reason a whole culture thinks that this is special And before I say it, I'm
2: going to think this is disgusting. I'm going to I'm going to give it its fair shot. Yeah. And you might find out that the culture you thought was representative of everybody is just actually the high elite academy that wants to tell you and force it down your throat, which is what's happened with Faulkner. So. Yep. And you're like, "Oh, I don't have to be bound to love him." But I still should read him and then be able to tell these people why they're wrong. Turns out that only snotty French people who like disgusting things
1: yeah, and have, mm-hmm. and All the have money developed the their there. ability to tolerate disgusting things and then hold it over people. Yep. Like yeah. Escargo.
0: Bunch of or 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 accordion playing, uh, freedom <laughs> hating. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Didn't know how I was going to start that. Hello, this is Nathan Alberson, your humble and obedient host uh, with with my good friend, Jake Menzel. How are you doing, Jake? Great. How are you, Nathan? I'm doing fantastic. And we wanted to talk to you about patreon.com forward slash the bookening.
1: Patreon is a way where you can help support our work by giving a very small amount of money a month. Um, and we can give you guys some rewards and some special features back. And it will help us do things like upgrade or actually first cover some of the costs associated with this show. And then, uh, Lord willing, as, as that monthly dollar amount grows, uh, upgrade some of our equipment and provide a little bit of pocket cash to us as we go about trying to make a great show that you guys love.
0: That's absolutely right. I couldn't have said it better myself and, in fact, wouldn't have said it better. Um, would have said it terribly Probably, which is why we had you do that part. But yes, if you want to support us, this is a good way to do that. If you just want to support Warhorn Media and the work that we're doing, this is a fantastic way to do that. And if you just wanna, if you're greedy for um, 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 amazing prizes and, and and awesome things, then we got all, all kinds of reward level up to. If you if you want to give us a hundred dollars per month, then you will be able to choose. One of the books that we read, within reason. A few caveats. There's some. A there's few. some caveats there. If you choose, say, the Marquis de Sade, we will not do that. If you choose Fifty Shades gross. of anything, we won't do that. Gross. But if you choose, I don't know, The Great Gatsby. Yeah, sure. We'll do that. Or you know, you could probably make us do something fun. You want us to do one of the Stephen King books that doesn't have a lot of sex in it, or you want us to, I don't know. You could use your imagination. We're willing to work with you for hundred bucks a month.
1: <laughs>
0: so- <laughs> So yeah, go to patreon.com forward slash the bookening. It would really mean a lot to me personally and to Jake and Brandon if you could help us support this work and cover some of the costs.
1: Just think, the lowest support level you can give is $4 a month. That's what? That's a drink at Starbucks. That's a really cheap meal at Burger King.
0: And you're supporting, arguably, the greatest Christian literature podcast known to man. True story. Patreon.com forward slash the bookening.